So about that one message, could you put it in a sentence that a fifth grader would understand? You remember, that's where we started 12 weeks ago. And hopefully you're further along in your understanding of how the Bible all fits together. Well, today, understanding that it takes a while for this stuff to kind of sink through, what we're going to do is go back to the good beginning and chase it all the way forward to the great ending. We've been studying the series of the Bible, looking at cover to cover, celebrating Christ from Genesis to Revelation. And we're drawing it all to a close today. And and so here's how we've put the Bible in a sentence as we've been working through the study. Here it is in a sentence. God has created and is reconciling all things to himself through Christ for his glory. So God has created and is reconciling all things to himself through Christ for his glory. This is the message of the Bible. This is what we've been looking at. And this message begs some questions. When you you look at that verse in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, and, and, and you read that he brings all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ... It begs the question, why do things need to be brought together? Why do things need to be reconciled? And, and what exactly needs to be reconciled? The word reconciled just means harmony. It means to restore to friendship. What, what needs bringing back together? And how? how? How are those things brought together? Well, the story of the Bible answers these questions. The first question, why? Why do all things need reconciling? Takes us back to the good beginning. Remember, this has been a 40,000-foot flyover, right? We're flying through scriptures here, the Bible in 12 weeks, right? So we go back to the good beginning to find out why all things need to be reconciled. And it's in the good beginning that we read that God created everything out of nothing through the power of his word. And he created Adam and Eve in his image. And he created them for a relationship, to be with him. We were created by God, for God. And their existence there in the garden was paradise. It was a perfect place. And they enjoyed a perfect relationship with God, with each other, and with the world in which they lived. It was all perfect. It really was paradise. Well, it all changed though, didn't it? It all changed the day that the serpent slithered into the garden, Satan himself, and started to do his work. And when we go to Genesis chapter 3, we find out that everything changes the day of the fatal fall. When they fell from grace and when they fell from living their lives under God's rule and his will, what happened? Well, Satan tempted them. And his temptations center in on the word of God. Did God really say that? He questioned. You will not surely die, contradicting God's clear word and getting them to doubt his very character, his goodness. Hey, Adam and Eve, I think God's holding back something that's good for you. And you ought to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you're going to be like God in the day that you eat of it. And so, hey, he planted the seeds. They doubted his goodness. They disobey his clear commands, and in effect, they reject his rule. And from that point in human history, everything changed. 
Everything changed in their relationship with God. Everything changed in their relationship with each other. Everything changed in this world. Death enters in. It was God's punishment for sin. And not only that, that sin not only brought death physically, but it brought death spiritually. It separated man from God. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. It reminds us that sin separates us. It removes us from God's holy presence. He can't have a relationship with sinners. Something's got to happen with our sin. And not only are things not right with God, but our sin has made things not right with each other. And so that there's enmity and strife, and even in the closest of human relationships, the marriage relationship, Adam and, Adam and Eve's relationship was forever changed the day they broke ranks with God. Everything is under the curse. Their relationships, their bodies, the work that they did, and even the raising and bringing in children into this world were under the curse. Why do all things need reconciling? Because we're sinners, and our sin has fundamentally changed God's created world and his desire for relationships with him and with each other. G.K. Chesterton, the great British writer of the last century, um, wrote an interesting editorial response. He, He read an editorial in London Times that was bewailing and bemoaning the fact that, man, this world is just going downhill fast. And it it asks the question, what is wrong with the world? So Chesterton, the clever writer that he was, and a very theologically astute person, wrote back this reply. Dear editor, as to your question is, what's wrong with the world? I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. He understood it. That the reason we need reconciling is because... We've broken ranks with God. We are sinners. We're out of relationship with Him. And because we're out of relationship with Him, we're not not in the relationships we should be with each other. So, why do all things need reconciling? Because we're sinners. What needs to be reconciled? We do, with God and with each other. So every time I find myself, like Paul in Romans 7, doing the things that I don't want to do, or not doing the things that I want to do, I'm reminded, ah, I need to be reconciled with God. Every time we read about the atrocities in Sudan or more bombings in Iraq, we're reminded we need to be reconciled with each other. Every time we hear of tensions in a marriage or marriages dissolving in divorce, we're we're reminded we, we need to be reconciled. When we find ourselves parting ways, even in our families, we can't even speak together. We didn't even want to get together at Thanksgiving. We're reminded we need to be reconciled. Every time we hear more news about this environment that we live in, this world that we live in, and how things are spiraling and going in the wrong direction, we're reminded that even the physical world that we live in is under the curse. And it longs, as the scriptures say, it cries out, it groans for things to be made right for God's restorative touch and when sin came in on that day in Genesis 3 we realized everything changed but what the Bible tells us one thing didn't change God didn't change the God who created us for himself continued to love us he doesn't wink at sin he deals with it he is a God of justice he deals with it he doesn't sweep it under the carpet but he also consistently moves forward to his people in mercy 
and in love and in compassion. And so in the midst of God's judgment there in Genesis 3, we find God consistently moving towards Adam and Eve and us with mercy and grace. So rather than wiping us out and starting all over, he extends his promised plan and starts to unfold it. And it wasn't like Genesis 3 caught God by surprise. He said, can you believe it? They ate the fruit. I didn't think they'd ever do that. I gave them everything in the garden to enjoy. The one thing that I told them not to do, they they just ate it. What are we going to do? All right, plan B, guys. Get out your mammograms. Come on, let's write some new stuff down. He didn't do that. We know from the scriptures that before the very creation of the world, God had drawn up a plan, and the plan was for the Lamb of God, Christ, to be sacrificed. Remember last week, we looked at the whole thing of before the creation of the world, God chose us to be holy and blameless in His sight. He's known it all along. And so in the midst of judgment, God offers this first word of promise. And it goes like this in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He's now addressing the serpent, Satan. He, the descendant of Eve, male descendant, will crush your head, your being Satan, and you, Satan, will strike his heel. Uh, This is the first word of promise, that one of Eve's descendants is going to be this promised Savior who crushes the serpent's head. And all we know now is it could be any guy, anyone, because she is the mother of all living. She's Eve. And we realize as we start working through the Bible that the promise starts to get focused. It's like this funnel. It starts at the top. Eve's there. Then it becomes a little tighter. No, it's not just one of Eve's descendants. It's actually going to be someone who comes from the, the nation of Abraham, the father of this great nation. It's going to be from Abraham. Ah, but it's not just Abraham. It's going to be from his great-grandson, Judah's tribe, from that tribe. And then we find out later on as we keep reading, it's not just from Judah's tribe, but actually from David's family, from David's house. And then we go on in the prophets and we read, he'll be born of a virgin. He'll be born in the town of Bethlehem, continuing to sharpen the focus of who this promised Savior is. And so the promise starts right in the midst of judgment and it's given to Eve and through Eve to us. And then we follow that promise and it lands again at the person of Abraham. Wow, he's an unlikely candidate. Remember him? He's the guy who's an idolater back in Ur. He doesn't even live in the promised land. And what does God promise him? He promises land. He says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. Your your descendants are going to outnumber the sands of the seashore and the stars of the heavens. And not only that, I'm going to bless your family. And through this promised Savior that comes through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Relationship. And so we follow the promises of God through Abraham. And we follow Abraham and his family as they go up from Ur and Haran and go down in the promised land. And then there's famine, and so they go down into Egypt and they're saved there. And there's 70 strong, remember? And that 70 strong grows in this mighty nation. And two million end up walking out of, Exod- out of Egypt on that great day of Exodus. They go into the promised land 40 years later. And then we remember they harden their hearts against God. And God takes them out of the promised land. And we follow them again into exile, into Babylon, and then back that remnant 
back into God's promised land. And throughout the Old Testament, we have these pictures. Pictures of God's promised Savior. Pictures of God's promised deliverance. We got the picture in Genesis 22. The the promise there of the ram caught in the thicket. What was that ram? That ram was the one who died in Isaac's place. We've got the Passover lamb whose blood was sacrificed and applied to the doorposts of the houses. And that lamb died in the place of the firstborn male to save them from the angel of death. There was the tabernacle, that great picture of God's presence. And what happened in the tabernacle? There were priests who offered up sacrifices every day for sin. Pictures throughout the Old Testament. The serpent, the bronze serpent, there on the staff raised up pointing forward to Christ's crucifixion. All these pictures of God's salvation in the Old Testament. Well, the promises continue. They go from Eve, they go on to Abraham, and then they find their fullness in David when God adds to it and says, and here's what else is going to happen. This promised Savior is going to be a king, and he's going to be one of your descendants, David, and he is going to rule eternally and set up my perfect kingdom where true justice and righteousness and peace rules forever. And the Bible says no matter how many promises God has made, no matter how many, they're all yes in Jesus. And that's what the Old Testament is doing. It's shouting, he's coming, this promised Savior, this one who's going to reverse the effects of the fall. He's coming, get ready, he's coming. So why do we need reconciling? Because we're all sinners. Who needs to be reconciled? We do, with God and with each other. Well, how? How is one reconciled? Through this promised Savior. Through this promised Savior. And through faith in this promised Savior. What God was looking for is for people to take him at his word, just like Abraham did. Remember, Abraham gives us that first great picture of real faith. He just took God at his word. God said, get up and go to to the promised land. Well, where is it? You'll know when you get there. Okay, we're going. He took God as a word. He obeyed his commands and he believed his promises. He really believed that God would do what wasn't really happening. He said, you can be a father of a great nation. God, I don't even have a son. But he believed that God would do that. And he was willing to sacrifice his son when God said, Offer up your son as a sacrifice. I don't know about you, but Abraham's faith uh, wasn't, wasn't a faith that was repeated very often, consistently in the lives of God's people. I mean, what, what you have is kind of like what happened in Judges. Everyone's doing that which they thought was right in their own eyes. They were living life how they wanted to live it. They were taking their cues from the world rather from the word of God. And, and yet God was merciful to them. I mean, I, I don't know if it's ever happened to you that you've entered into any kind of a business deal. But, but I was just imagine this whole thing of the covenant. God says, hey, let's come into this covenant relationship. I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be my people. And let's just translate it to a business deal. You need some services rendered and So you go to this person who says, yeah, I can do that. And the terms of the deal are, you got to put some money down up front. And so you do. You're in good faith. You've held up your end of the bargain. 
but this guy totally stiffs you. He takes your money, he runs. You've never heard him again or heard from him again. He's gone. I guarantee you, your inclination will be not to, let's go back and find this guy so that he can do some work for me. You don't trust this guy. God was so gracious to us that he didn't say, hey, you know what? You had your chance, people. I've been faithful every step of the way. I've perfectly held up my end of the bargain, and I've given you more than you've ever desired or needed. And so forget it. I'm starting over. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And so they're reconciled, and we're reconciled through faith in this promised Savior. And we realize through the prophets that this promised Savior is going to be a suffering Savior, that there's something unique about how he suffers that actually reconciles. It's his suffering on the cross that reconciles us to God. Look at, the, look at the, just the imagery of the cross. It takes on the two dimensions that need reconciling with God and with each other. And it's through the sufferings of Christ that we are reconciled. So when the New Testament says, here he is, he's come, the forerunner shouts and he says, John the Baptist, behold who? The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What's he talking about? He's talking about those lambs that were sacrificed. He's talking about Isaiah's prophecy that he is going to be like a lamb led to the slaughter who's going to be pierced and wounded for our sins. That's how we are reconciled, by placing our faith in the promised Savior who suffered for us. And that's the story of the New Testament. Jesus was born. He perfectly lived out his life in obedience to the Father. He was hung on a Roman cross, impaled on that tree for you and me. And when his followers saw him crucified by the Romans, they fled in fear and hid out in the, in the upper room, for sure thinking, boy, if they did that to our master and we're his followers, we're next. We're next. But then they met Jesus. And they put their hands and fingers through the nail prints in his hands and feet. And their lives were forever changed. Empowered by the Spirit of Christ, they went out boldly proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the very ends of the world at great risk. And at the even of the giving of their own lives, they were martyrs for Christ. And for 2,000 years, faithful witnesses have gone on for Jesus Christ, waiting for his return. And so like this first candle, we're a people of hope, the prophet's candle, a candle of hope. Why are we a people of hope? Because we have experienced God's forgiveness. We have new hearts. We have new family, new relationships within the family of God. And as Paul Harvey says, we have the rest of the story. We've got revelation. We know how it ends. We know where all of human history is going. We've got the book of Revelation. Now, when it comes to the book of Revelation, I do think there are two kinds of people. The first kind, this is a very small group. They're really into the book of Revelation. I mean, they're end-time fanatics. I'm sure they read all the Left Behind books. And they're probably into charts. And they may even give you some insights on what's happening in the Middle East and how it ties into here. And they may even tell you when he's coming back. There's those kinds of people. And then there's the rest of us that go, man, this is a hard book. It kind of reminds me of my friend Larry, who grew up in a church, 
And his pastor kind of had difficulty pronouncing some of the words in the Bible. So when he got to a word that was hard to pronounce, he just said, hard word. So (laughs) Joseph of Arimathea would just be Joseph of hard word. And you can imagine what some of the scripture readings must have sounded like in that church there in Connecticut when hard word and hard word kept going after hard word. Um, But some of us just look at the book of Revelation. Okay, we can pronounce it, not a problem. But we say, hard book, I don't get it. Mystery, it's all riddles. I don't know what's going on. I think Jesus wins. I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. But, you know, I, I just, I don't get it. So we stay away from it. Well, here's what you want to understand is how revelation brings all the promises to, that God has made through Christ to completion. It, it truly is the great ending of this unbelievable story. So, for example, we are reminded that the curse is removed. You know, that's what God has been doing, reversing the curse from the very beginning when he made that first promise in Genesis 3.15. We know about the removing of the curse first in Galatians, but then later in Revelation. First Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What was the curse of the law? You break the law, you're going to die. How did Jesus break the curse? By dying on that cross for you and me. Revelation 22 says, no longer will there be any curse. The end of the story is the curse is broken. There is no more curse. Chapter 20, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. They were destroyed. 21.4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's that first promise that he'll crush the serpent's head. Well, Revelation tells us about the crushing of the enemy. Chapter 20, And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He's destroyed. Eternally suffering in hell with his minions. The promise of land. It's fulfilled in Revelation. We find out it's not just a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a new land. It's a new heaven and a new earth. So we read, Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Revelation chapter 21. The promise that he would be the father of a great nation, Abraham that is. That his family would bring blessing, having been blessed by God, would bring blessing to all the nations. Fulfilled in Revelation. We read about it in chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Remember, sands of the seashore, stars in the heaven? No one could count it. And what do we know about this great multitude? They're made up from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They're standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. There's the eternal throne promised to David that one of his sons would rule forever. We have that eternal throne and eternal reign right there in Revelation chapter 4. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And then when he said to Abraham, hey, I, I will be your God and you'll be my people, Genesis 17, 8, 
we have that promise fulfilled yet again at the end of the story, chapter 21. John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. God will, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's all brought to completion as we get to the end of the story and look out into the future of what's going to still take place. We think about the purpose of the book. Look at the first verse of Revelation, and here's what we read. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what's being unfolded. That's what's being unveiled. That's the focus of the book. It's Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And so we know this book is about Jesus Christ, and it's about what must soon take place. And we go, no, wait a minute. When was this book written? Well, most scholars think somewhere around 80, 90. Well, that's a long time ago. That's like 1,900 years ago. And these things are to soon take place? What, did God forget? No, God's infinite. Time for God is just not like us. Here's how Peter puts it. He says, A thousand years is like a day for the Lord, and a day like a thousand years. Our thousand years is like a day for the Lord. And a day for the Lord is like a thousand years for us. So, how long has it been? 1,900 years. How many days is that? Two. It's not been very long. He's coming soon, the scriptures say. That's the purpose of the book, to reveal Christ and to help us understand what must soon take place. Well, what's the context? It's suffering and persecution. You go back to chapter 1, verse 9. John writes about the context here. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John's in exile on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and bearing testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Savior. He's had to flee there for his own life. He's written, writing to churches that are being persecuted Maybe in the time of Nero, when he was literally using Christians as human torches. Or maybe later on, in some of the sufferings and persecutions that broke out in the latter part of the first century. There's a key verse in Revelation that helps us understand the structure of it. It's found in Revelation 1, verse 19. It's kind of like that Acts 1-8 that gives us the outline for the book of Acts. Here's what 1-19 says. Write, therefore, what you have seen... What is now, verses, chapters 1 through 4, and what will take place later, chapters 5 through 22. So, the very introductory chapter, chapter 1, and then 2, 3, and 4 has to do with now. What's taking place now, or for us, what took place then, back in the first century. And then, chapters 5 and following, all the way to the end, is what will take place. I'll help you as you get your hands around this difficult book. Well, let's bring it home. How do we bring this study home? Well, there's a lot of things we could say, but let's just say a few things. First, this is God's story, but we're part of the story. This is God's story that he's given to us in the word of God, but we're in the story. 
We, we actually are in this story. We are the objects of God's love, and we are to be the instruments of his grace, the messengers that go out with the good news. So if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, this is our story, and this is our kind of job to keep this story going forth. And if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, it still is your story that God did this for you. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you are in the story. And this story was, a, was, was something that was written before it all began with you in mind. It's your story. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ... He's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible starts with a wedding. It ends with a wedding. The first wedding is Adam and Eve. The last wedding is Christ and his people, the church. We're in the story. And it's not enough to know that. We need to act on that. And so the book ends by saying we we need to receive the gift of eternal life. So in Revelation chapter 21, I think it is, we read this, 22. The Spirit and the bride say, come. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The bride is the church, the people of God. And they say to this Jesus, this Lamb of God, this promised Savior, come, come. And let him who hears, that's us, who hears about this revelation, let us say, come. Who should come? Who's ever thirsty? Let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Are you wishing for more? Are you thirsty for something more in life? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And the Bible says, come to him. Go to him. Receive the gift of eternal life by acknowledging your need and by acknowledging that Jesus died for you. Come. And you can do that today as simply as just saying, Jesus, I need you. I'm thirsty. I long for so much more in this life and I'm messed up and I'm out of relationship with you and so many people. I need your grace and forgiveness. Come. Come. And then finally, I want to talk about the throne in heaven. It's probably the dominant symbol and image that you have in the book. It's referred to over 40 times in the book of Revelation. It's at the very center of heaven and the center of activity. And that throne reminds us of three things. First of all, that God is the judge. In chapter 4, there are flashes of lightning coming from the throne. There are peals of thunder. It's an ominous place. And the book of Revelation continues to unfold the fact that God is going to bring judgment on this world. That's a scary thing. 
It's like standing before a judge's bench. That is a frightening place to be. I don't hear people, and it's not like I've been to court a lot of times, so I just want to make that clear. But when I've been there, I haven't heard a lot of people joking around with the judge. Hey, judge, you hear the latest good joke? It's a real knee slapper. You got to hear it. Let me tell it to you. You don't hear that. It's a very serious place. It's always interesting to notice the attitudes and demeanors of people in this courtroom. It reminds me of what the Bible says one day going to happen. We're all going to stand before Christ, who is the judge. Jesus was raised from the dead. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And God has appointed him as ruler over all things. And we're going to stand before him. And we're going to have to give an account for our life. And here's how Jesus talks about that day in Matthew chapter 7. He says, you know, people are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, Jesus, we're in. I'm in. You're my man. Because I did miracles for you. And I cast out demons for you. I mean, that's a pretty good spiritual pedigree right there. We're going, good resume. He's probably in, right? Miracles and demons. Jesus says, I don't know you. I have a relationship with you. He doesn't say, you didn't do enough for me. I needed more miracles. There are a lot more demons you're supposed to cast out, and you didn't do it. He didn't say that. He says, I don't know you. You did life without me. That was your choice. I pursued you. You did life without me. And now you will do life without me forever. And the only way you and I have a standing before the judgment seat of God is to say, your son did it all for me. I don't have any standing except that I place my faith in him. I believe that he died to take the punishment of my sins. And I'm trusting your son, God. That's our standing. So when you think about the throne, you think about God's judgment. But you also think about his rule. He's sovereign. You think about dominion. Isn't that cool? That every time you come to Door Creek Church, you turn down the street, and you turn down what street? Dominion, right there. Dominion. Reminding us God's on the throne. Reminding us he's in control. You think your life's out of control right now? You think this world's out of control? Hey, it is easy to come to that conclusion. You think it was easy for John? on the island of Patmos to say, God's lost me. I'm off his radar. You think the seven churches are going, hey, we're trying to faithfully live out the Christian message and we're getting killed, literally killed. God's in control. That's a good thing to remember when we see the throne in heaven. He is in control, complete control. Nothing is slipping through his fingertips. There's never a oops in heaven. He's got it all your life right now. The throne reminds us he's in control. And he's going to bring all things under his control and set up his rule. And that's going to be a glad day. The third thing about the throne, it's a center of worship. Every time you see these pictures of the throne, there's people gathered around it like the 24 elders who are taking off their crowns and offering it in worship and they're singing Hallelujah and praise God and worthy is the Lamb. It's worship, worship. We get a glimpse of it in chapter 5. Read this with me. When we get to the highlighted section, you read with me. So we kind of get a sense of this worship that's going on even right now. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchase men for for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Open our eyes to see your Son, our Savior. The Lamb who was slain, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Lord, don't just open our eyes to see it. Open our hearts to receive your Son as our King. Grant faith to someone this morning to believe that. Reconcile us to yourself and to each other. And may we bow before you in worship all of our lives. Amen.